Welcome, everybody. Today is Monday, March 15th. My name is Gabby Hefferty, Managing Director of ACG Analytics. I am joined today by Larry McDonald, founder of the Bear Traps Report and New York Times bestselling author, as well as John Turek, ACGA Central Bank Analyst. We are here today to preview Wednesday's Fed meeting, which seems like the first important meeting maybe in the last year where the market and the Fed seem to be at a bit of a crossroads, where the Fed finally has an opportunity to be maybe slightly more dovish than the market expects. I say this following a significant rate move higher over the past few weeks. So, John, I want to start with you on your first stop plot of 2021 and what you're looking for there. Thanks, Gabby. I mean, I think, you know, it's there's probably two key themes for this meeting, one of them being the first stop plot release of 2021 and the other being, you know, kind of maybe adding some language to what substantial progress is in the context of QE. But, you know, starting with the dot plot, it, you know, we've come a long way since the December dots, which is the last time the Fed's released their staff economic projections. And the market's looking for, you know, I think a few things. One is how does the rate guidance change from the you know improved optimism in both the economic outlook and and maybe the inflationary outlook and then secondly i think that the market's looking for a little bit of a broader picture of how the dot plot interacts with itself and kind of communicates the fed's reaction function i mean one of the key things to watch and i think that has been a part of this disconnect between the markets and the fed is that the fed's growth forecast for this year is 4.2% and the market is somewhere between 6 and a half and 8 so you know part of the reason that you know some of the fed maybe forward guidance luster has been lost is that is that the market is assuming a much higher growth rate than the Fed. So I think, you know, kind of getting the Fed back on side in terms of a more proper growth rate will be very important. And I think that will manifest itself in the 2021 growth dot being above 6% and not below. And then that also being, you know, kind of brought into the fold with the rate guidance that out in 2023, which has traditionally been the Fed since September and the new reaction function has been their commitment mechanism to flexible average inflation targeting is to that to remain at the lower bound so that so one second just to unpack what you said a little bit so there's these words substantial progress that were used in the last meeting and then since then the street expectations have surpassed where the fed was so is the market currently seeing what they perceive to be substantial progress and where do you think market expectations currently are Yeah, so I think that, you know, when the Fed introduced that language as it relates to the balance sheet in December, there wasn't a democratic sweep and there wasn't a rapid vaccine rollout. And now the market is kind of assuming that it's not almost likely that we're going to have a a forehandle on unemployment by the end of the year. And, you know, most people assume that that would equate to substantial progress. And if you get substantial progress being the keyword for a taper of asset purchases. So, you know, it's become probably a, a, a modal outcome for the market that by the end of the year that the Fed will signal, you know, reduction in asset purchases. And, you know, it's not clear from language that we've heard from the Fed, you know, going into the blackout period that that's really where they are. So I think like the onus is really on Powell in the press conference to provide further context on what substantial progress is. And, you know, I think that will probably come in the form of echoing a lot of comments we've heard from both Governor Clarida and Governor Brainard that it's not just a headline unemployment number. It's a much more broad reading of the labor market. 
But Larry, do you agree with what John is saying? And do you think the market is getting a bit ahead of itself with this recovery and what it means for central bank policy? Exactly. Yeah. What's happening is we have a historic, this is probably the most important Fed meeting in years that I just, they really have to set the table and the beast in the market is pushing them. And the, the, the market essentially just wants more clarity on the balance sheet because valuations in the market are entirely dependent on the balance sheet. And if you think about it, the last seven, eight years, the Fed has been reactive, not proactive in 2013. They tried to taper and then they had to slow that down. In 2015-16, they were promising us eight rate hikes in two years. They did two. So once again, those two points in time were extremely reactive. 2018, they were promising $50 billion a month of balance sheet reduction and another eight more rate hikes, and they had to reverse that. So there's these times where the beast in the market forces a reaction out of the Fed. And you, you got to think that, this, I mean, these people are not idiots. They, they must have figured this out by now. They don't want to go down this road. They can be pro Proactive like a draggy or reactive like a cliche. And I think John is, is on to something here where if they're proactive, they just have to give more certainty on the balance sheet, open the door a little bit to yield curve control, just do something to contain the risk in the dollar. And if they do that, they will prolong the recovery. They won't allow the dollar to you know, lose control and it ruin the global recovery. And, but above all, this is a social justice Fed. This is a Fed that is staring down the barrel of 13 million people that are outside the labor force more than a year ago in January. And they really, they have no room to mess with the market here in terms of, you know, tough guy, because there's just the inequality, really embarrassment, the anchor that's around their neck is inequality. So I think they really have to push against the market here and, and really try to be proactive. And I think that's what they're going to do. So they have this window right now to be proactive, as you put it, because whereas before in December, the market was pricing in a destination hike three to four years out. If it's currently priced a year and a half to December 2022, it's really the first opportunity that they have to tell the market, actually, we want to have more time on income inequality and kind of this lower end and give them time to recover and not do another kind of recovery that slows out income inequality the way that we saw it done the first time after the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, exactly. What, what's been happening is there's 64 trillion of GDP outside the United States and 20 trillion in. So 64 versus 20. And most of the world trade is in dollars. Obviously, the U.S. Rust Belt, which has been decimated and you know, had a, has, has a lot to do with a lot of the you know, populism in America, is very dollar sensitive. And every time the dollar has made a march higher, we've had this rolling populism. But now it's with you know, so much so many more people unemployed. So the chances of the Fed gambling and really opening the door, to the they really have to slam the taper door shut. If you leave it open an inch, then uh, if they're not more dovish than the rest of the world, developed market central banks, then they have a big problem. And I just add one other thing. This is so important. Emerging market countries and these balance sheets of emerging market countries cannot withstand a dollar march higher right now. The country after country has been you know, really hurt by COVID and they just don't have the fiscal and monetary levers that the Fed has. So 
if the Fed allows the dollar to to strengthen because of a you know taper tantrum, the risk to those global economies and emerging markets is much higher than it's been in a long time because the the COVID banged up. Absolutely, John. Would you say it's the Fed has kind of taken up the responsibility for global economic stability, given the role of the dollar in global markets and how it does affect EM when they, their liabilities blow out without any changes? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good point. And I think it's part of probably a broader theme that the Fed wants to avoid. And I think that the Fed's very cognizant of is that the Fed doesn't want to be the cause of a circuit breaker in terms of this economic recovery, especially at the initial stages. And, you know, what we've traditionally seen in prior cycles is that, you know, once that there was seen progress on the economy, the Fed would pull back accommodation and the early amplifiers of that, like, quote unquote, leakage would be first in the emerging world, which would slow growth. And then that would leak into other export oriented economies. And then it would feed back into the U.S. So I think that, you know, the I think that especially this Fed, as we saw during the COVID shock, um, is very cognizant of the international linkages and, and its role given the dollars as a global trade currency. But I also really think that, you know, part of what makes their new framework, you know, so interesting is that it, it's really meant to amplify these right tail outcomes in terms of, you know, growth and the recovery. And it's for them to lean into it, right? It's not to, you know, readjust or recalibrate policy um, relative to the pace of the recovery. It's to let the recovery go on its own. And then once it reaches its end destination, that is when it is cut off. It's a very, you know, it's a, it's a change of pace from the traditional neoliberalism, neo-Keynesian, how do you kind of just quickly re- recalibrate policy. It's much more about, you know, accentuating right tail outcomes. And I think that, you know, if this Fed will be, you know, especially relative to where the market is, will be much more cognizant of those factors. So you started to go into some of the Fed speeches that we heard in the last few weeks and how they may have already begun to try to allude to what substantial progress could mean for the Fed. And, and Larry also touched on it with income inequality. Can we Can you tell us some of the specific words that they were using to make you feel that it's not just about U3 unemployment at the end of the year, there might be other factors at play? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, in the week before the the current blackout period, we heard probably three things that were different and were probably a leading indicator in terms of where Fed language is going to go on on this very important topic. I mean, you know, coming back to what Powell said at the Wall Street Journal event, not only did he say that we're a long way from our goals, so that's not consistent with substantial progress, he also said that in his opinion, it would take quote unquote, some time, you know, and then feeding that back into, you know, what we heard from Clarita and Brainard is that they, you know, introduced language that was much more inclusive and, in, you know, in terms of defining what maximum employment is and making sure that it's not just U3 number, because, you know, what, the, as we said at the beginning, what the market is basically discounting is that we'll get be at a 4%, you know, unemployment rate by the end of the year, and that'll be enough for the Fed to taper. But this language is a much more suggestive of even if you get to 4%, that does not equal an automatic taper. And I think like that's something for Powell to drive home at the press conference. And I think that's part of this bigger theme of the Fed delinking growth outcomes from policy is that the Fed is more than happy to be, you know, bullish on the economy and bullish on growth. But, you know, it's it's contextualizing that and what it means for policy and, and delinking that. You know, that's I think that'll be part of the language going forward as they kind of get back on side with where the market is in terms of their growth forecasts. Larry, I want to turn to you for the real million-dollar question. How do you position yourself going into this meeting, given our expectations? 
Well, in our Bloomberg chat, so we have a live Bloomberg chat with about 650 or so institutional investors, and uh, we have been issuing trade alerts the last two, three weeks uh, on gold miners and silver miners. If you look back in the previous cycle around FedSpeak and when they've offered more either forward guidance or more clarity the way John's pointing to, I think very wisely, whenever they've done that, the silver miners have, have outperformed dramatically, and now this time you have the green electric vehicle revolution that's also powering uh, silver. So you get two kind of engines there with some of what's called the sexy metals. So we're getting along sexy metals that are tied to this green revolution uh, tied to a Biden you know, green platform that also could benefit from a, you know, more like, like we talked about before, more dovish Fed. Also, emerging markets, they've been under stress lately because the dollars made this counter trend rally that is all, I think, has a lot to do with rate differentials. And as U.S. rates have gone higher, sucked capital back into the United States from around the world to strengthen the dollar. And so that dollar counter trend rally has created some meaningful sell-offs in EM uh, countries. And so if the Fed does this, EM is going to get a real kicker to the upside. If the Fed puts more clarity around the balance sheet sustainability toward $120 billion a month of, of asset purchases, that's all the market really cares about. As long as there's certainty going out and the, the market's essentially saying, you're going to taper in September, October, November. That's what the market's saying. The Fed's saying we're not. And to John's point, but they're not saying we're not clear enough and they need to cement that we're not going to taper. And if that's the case, then emerging markets, gold, silver, that's those are your two probably highest you know, near-term upside trades, I think. Got it. Sexy metals. I will not let that one go. John, the supplementary leverage ratio technically could expire March 31st. Can the Fed afford to have it expire given the political pressure to not extend it? Do you expect that it will be extended? And any other comments on the SLR? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, I guess we're all kind of surprised a little that it hasn't been extended yet. And the fact that, you know, we've had this political commentary from two senators, um, you know, has only probably amplified it as a theme. But I think that it's pretty inevitable that it'll get extended. And from a market's perspective, we're debating a Fed that doesn't want to deal with an unwanted tightening of financial conditions and not extending the SOR exemption would be just that. So, you know, it's, it's a very balanced time for the Treasury market and taking away, you know, a, a marginal buyer at such a critical juncture would be, you know, probably detrimental to a lot of the Fed's goals at the moment. So I think that, you know, given, you know, how that we're in the middle of a TGA rundown, the Fed is still doing a lot of QE and we're going to have a lot of issue and having bank balance sheets open is a very is very important especially in the context of an economic recovery that will require their lending channel stay pretty fluid. So, you know, taking away bank balance sheet at this stage of the recovery is neither serves broader economic policy um, objectives and is, is detrimental to market functioning. So I think it's pretty inevitable that we get the extension. The question is, does it come on Wednesday or does it come, you know, before sometime closer to March 31? I'm not sure. But given the politics around the situation, it wouldn't surprise me if the Fed tries to sneak it in, you know, under all the noise of the rest of the stuff that comes from the meeting. Right. Well, it seems like you guys are both in agreement and very consistent that the Fed is really going to try to enhance the recovery and not risk getting in the way of it. But both of you, starting with Larry, any last points you want to make before we wrap up? Yeah, I just want to ask John. So John, you know, this is a, an incredible moment in, in history because you have, it's like coming out of World War II. 
And because the world you know, faced COVID together and uh, the economic destruction was so uh, globally profound, one would think behind the scenes there's a little bit more coordination with central bankers than meets the eye. I think that's just common sense. And the petri dishes of the world, I'm told from the clients that I respect, What's happening in those petri dishes? Because we have Australia is an economy that is the most exposed to commodity inflation, right? So they are, you know, really exposed. They have a currency that's massively exposed to commodity inflation, the economy. We have commodity prices picking up. But it, it appears that uh, the RBA and, and what's happening in New Zealand, there's a lot of experimental policy here around yield curve control in the Petri dish, number one. So it's a little bit of table setting for the Fed, possibly. You know, if you, if you think about conspiracies or if you think really think that there's coordination here. And then you look at Janet Yellen over the weekend and Janet Yellen, you know, is really in a hubris mode around inflation, laughing and off as if you know, there's not a lot of risk there. And even if there was risk, Powell and the Fed can handle it. To me, it's, it's, it's the clients that I respect, that's a little bit of table setting there as well. So it, it looks like this. she's basically out there, you know, getting in front of Powell. And I think what she's essentially saying is if Powell is, you know, overly dovish and the dollar weakens and we have some inflation, that's not a problem. That's essentially what she's saying. And so can you just put those two together and it, do you see table setting here for, for Powell? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the interesting things we've seen from the RBA and the RBNZ this year, especially kind of thinking, you know, in the last couple months, is that, you know, they've kind of become this leading indicator for central banks in two different ways. One, the RBNZ is kind of dealing with, you know, on the one hand, having this very accommodative posture, this very outward outcome-based forward guidance, but in the context of an economy that's already back to their pre-COVID trends and is actually above their pre-COVID levels of output has an unemployment rate back to 4.9%, things like that. While the RBA, on the other hand, has been kind of forward thinking, not only in terms of last year with, you know, by doing YCC on their three-year rate, but also, you know, coming out this year with some form, you know, in their February meeting, coming out with some form of calendar guidance saying that they do not expect thresholds that would justify a rate hike to be met until at least 2024. So, you know, I think that they've become leading indicators for these two varying reasons. One is how does how do these central banks and their very broadly dovish reaction functions justify when growth is better than expected and also returns to their pre-COVID levels? And then two is, you know, how does, you know, central banks and their and their forward guidance stance evolve with the pace of the recovery? Because one of the things we've learned, especially since the, the results of the Georgia election, is that it's very hard for forward guidance to maintain its efficacy in, its, in a static fashion. It's much more important for forward guidance to be dynamic and to adjust with the pace of the recovery that so you know, keeps markets and central banks on the same side. So, you know, I think that there, I, I don't know, you know, how much table setting, but I think that there's a lot of lessons for the Fed, both from the RBNZ and the RBA in terms of delivering, who both, you know, have relatively dovish postures and both in, in terms of keeping, you know, markets at bay in terms of pricing and tightening. And in terms of Yellen, you know, I think her comments are interesting in the sense that, you know, it's possible that she's table setting for Powell, as you said. But I think it's also it also speaks to the idea that, you know, going into 2022 and the end of Powell's term is that Yellen's telling everyone at the Fed that inflation is not a concern and, you know, that there's a job on the line. I mean, I think that the political dynamics related to the Fed chair and, you know, does Yellen prefer someone like Governor Brainerd? You know, I think those kind of dynamics will be a pretty critical theme going forward because 
you could almost end up in this situation where, you know, Yellen takes the view that that inflation really isn't a risk and that you know, the Fed should be very serious about, you know, their new monetary policy framework where it becomes this who can outdub each other to kind of, you know, to keep the throne. So I think that's, you know, a very important dynamic to monitor going forward. And just to one follow up, John, what is, I mean, for, for people that are kind of learning the curve in terms of central bank, what is dynamic forward guidance or dynamic calendar guidance? Just give, be very specific and clear on that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the, you know, outcome based forward guidance is this, you know, the thing that the central banks have adopted that basically says that they will not tighten policy or change policy until certain outcomes are reached. The problem central banks in the last couple of weeks have had with it is that the market is already discounting these outcomes being met, even though they're not being met at the time. It's basically this time inconsistency issue that's manifested itself where people like the Fed are saying, well, look, look where the real unemployment rate is at 10%, but the market's saying, I'm in December of 2021. And and I see an un- unemployment rate of four and a half. And I think, you know, that the, the part of that for the central banks to stay on side is for them to be a lot more dynamic um, in terms of their forward guidance, you know, and saying that not only is it outcome based, but it's also, you know, with all these different qualifiers that we'll likely hear from Powell and that we've heard, you know, from central banks like the RBA that kind of, you know, pushes back on the market fighting their forward guidance. Thanks very much, John. Thank you both so much for taking the time today for our Fed preview. We will be continuing our analysis as we listen to the meeting and the the press conference, read the minutes, and we look forward to doing this again soon.